Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be sitting down in conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this adventurous little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Patrick Brown. Now, if you know Patrick, like I know Patrick, then you're going to know him as that guy who was a reporter for the CBC for a number of years. Well, we're going to get to hear Patrick talk about that and a lot more about that. We're going to go really in-depth into hearing Patrick describe his nearly 40-year career as a journalist, which began in Montreal in the mid-70s and soon led him to London, where he would be based out of. And during the 1980s, Patrick would be on the scene of many historical events from Manila to Beirut, from Warsaw to Berlin, just an incredible amount of stories and experiences that Patrick had along the way. Later in the interview, we're going to also talk about his extended period of time he spent reporting and living in China. All that and so much more in a really fantastic interview that I'm so happy to have done because as this podcast has unfolded, I've really been interested in wanting to go deeper into exploring people's life experiences that they've had through their work. A number of people have spent decades doing really interesting things along the way, and I really wanted to not only focus on Pender history with this podcast, but to also really find out more about people's pursuits and passions and careers that they've had through their lives, and this one is an example of that. So, I'm pretty positive you're going to like this. If you've never been here before, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. Thanks for listening. That's it for the intro. We'll see you guys on the other side. And without further ado, here's my interview with Patrick Brown. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right. I'm actually super happy that you're here and we're gathered on a uh, a Wednesday evening. I always like to tell people what's going on. I'm always curious when I listen to podcasts when they're doing it, but uh, it's like about eight o'clock on a stormy, rainy Wednesday pender night. That'll really narrow it down. <laughs> <laughs> In December. <laughs> in December. There we go. Made your way here in the dark, found your way. And uh, yeah, how was your day so far today? I'm a bit busy, but uh, acceptable. Thank you. Okay, busy but acceptable. Fantastic. All right, well, we'll uh, we'll lead right into the traditional first question we always get to, which is, what brought you to Pender Island? I was living in China and coming to the end of my desire to live in China and getting older and whatnot. And um, I had quite a number of years before lived for a while in Vancouver for a few months and thought that at least it would be good to have a property somewhere on the West Coast partly because if I moved back to Britain or some other part of the world, I don't really have much of a profile there. I could continue to work if I lived in Canada. So that was that was one part of the calculation. And I just like the sort of misty, mossy greenness of the, the West Coast. And I was doing a book tour in Canada and got to Vancouver in, I think, 2008. And a guy sent me an email. He said, hi, I'm Patrick Brown. I'm a journalist too. And he was a partner and co-founder of Island Tides, which used to be a local newspaper. 
which hasn't been around for a few years, but it used to be like a paper that came out every couple of weeks. For sure, yeah. And he showed up at this this book tour that I was giving to, and introduced himself. And I was talking to him and I mentioned that we're, that we were thinking of maybe looking at some some property, and, and he said, "Oh, you should, you should try the Gulf Islands. Come to Pender Island." And I didn't have time that trip, but a couple of years later, I did have time, and we came to BC and and ended up thinking, yeah, maybe it's a good idea to go and look at the islands. And I called him up and came over. So that's Patrick Brown introduced me to Pender. There you go. Hilarious. So the guy with the, <laughs> the guy with same the same name, the same full name. <laughs> that was his uh, interest in me. I think <laughs> clearly, how could he not have the same interest? Anyway, he's moved on. He's he's um, on the mainland. He's older and and. A couple of health challenges that uh, were not easy to deal with on the island, so he's uh, back on the other side of the Georgia Strait. Okay, so curious because it's kind of a big decision as to where you're going to wind up spending your time by having a home and everything. But what was it about Pender that got you that you thought, oh, this is a place where I should buy some property and live in? <sighs> I'd like to say it was something romantic, or you know, the, the the way people are. Sometimes, sometimes you listen to people talking about how they got to Pender Island. It's like they they came across the Red Sea bearing the Ark of the Covenant and uh, found the land of milk and honey just as God had promised. Um, it was initially a financial thing that if you're interested in living on the water and, and, and having very few neighbors, you want to do it on the mainland, you have to be about 500 miles north of Vancouver before anything becomes remotely affordable. Similarly on, uh, on Vancouver Island, I think. So not to say that Pender's at all affordable, but it's more affordable than the unaffordable other places. <laughs> and we looked around, we went to well, Vancouver Island, obviously, and Salt Spring and Galliano and Maine and um, up on the Sunshine Coast a bit and so on. And I think this is of the southern Gulf Islands, the Goldilocks Island, just enough of a community to have a critical mass to sustain things like a gas station, a grocery store, a clinic, a school and various other things that you get in the community here, but not such a, a mass of people as you have in Salt Spring, where it's it's really hard to feel you're not in a suburb. For sure. So it could have been anywhere, I suppose, but it, it turned out that this was not such a bad choice after all. And so you said it was a couple of years after 2008, so it was around 2010 around there? Or? Yeah, I think I bought the place in 2011. Okay. And I've been living here pretty well full-time since 2012. Okay. How do you like the community? Well, it's not compulsory, you know. <laughs> Again, I don't, I don't quite share this 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 sense people have of their, this this origin myth they tell at every opportunity they get. You go to the uh, the island trust meeting, and people preface their remarks on short term vacation rentals. When we moved here in 1983, and we expected that it was going to be like this or that, and there's a sense that they're correctness on any issue is directly proportional to the amount of time they've been on Pender. Well, we were here back in the 70s, and I don't really share it. I don't sort of feel this sort of um, magical connection that some people have. I, I love Which it. Which is charming, but I don't share it. I love that you say that. I really, really love that you say that because it's a little bit different than what I hear most of the time and that uh, I love the alternative perspective. Anyway, I love it. I think that's fantastic. So let's uh, let's step back away from Pender and get into another area of your life, which I think we're going to be spending a lot of time in, and that's... Uh, the part of your life where you, for a career, were a journalist for close to 40 years. Yeah. 
Well, it's a... Uh, 40 years almost precisely. For almost 40 years precisely. Okay, well, maybe we're going to uh, try to land on that precise starting point here and dig around that area of your life and find out a little bit about how you became a journalist and how your life evolved from that career. But maybe you could start us off with your choice to uh, become a journalist and how that wound up happening. It's a totally accidental, really. I didn't have this dream that I would be a journalist. And... Um, I'd I'd moved to Montreal the end of 1970, beginning of 1971, and it's quite it's surprisingly difficult. I mean, I came from Britain, where where we we share a language, and I had uh, I could speak French, so I had another official language, and I have a university degree and and all that. But it's actually, and I traveled quite a bit uh, even before this, and and um, I was surprised how difficult it was to fit in and to find a niche uh, as as a new immigrant. So. I have the highest respect for these people who come from Syria or Ethiopia, Somalia, and starting with zero and and um, create this life for themselves. Because I, as a very privileged kind of immigrant, found it kind of tricky the first couple of years. I was doing a lot of work that I thought was somewhat uninteresting and, and somewhat menial, and uh, nobody was interested in me as a candidate for lots of things because I didn't know anything about Canada, Montreal. Anyway, as time goes on, you get to know people and you get to know things and you get more comfortable. And I was doing some writing and working in typesetting and publishing and various things around that sort of uh, semi-literary kind of world and needed a job at a certain point and found one by accident in the international service of CBC, Radio Canada International, broadcasting behind the Iron Curtain and places like that, Africa, Soviet Union, Canadian news. I mean, the minuscule audiences, <laughs> a kind of holdover from the Cold War, rather. But it was, it was interesting. And um, in 1976, Quebec had a kind of very surprising to some people election where the Parti Québécois, the... the um, independence-minded party won the election and English Canada kind of took a deep breath and said, what? What are we going to do? Because they were promising a referendum on independence within a year and uh, had all these projects for different laws on this and laws on that. Lots of energy. And um, the English side of CBC in Montreal uh, went through a period of reflection and realized that they didn't have any French-speaking reporters, which may have had a bearing on why they didn't kind of <laughs> prepare themselves better for the election result that happened. And uh, there was one in the radio newsroom, uh, there was one reporter who was bilingual enough to be able to listen to the police radio, which is all in French. Uh, but everybody else was either resolutely unilingual English-speaking or, or had some French, but not enough to seriously report on courts or political meetings or go off into the Rouen uh, or places like that. Oh, where is that place? And, 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 uh, and, and actually understand the place. You, you really need to talk to people if you're going to be a journalist. And they had a couple of spots for new journalists because of this new situation meant that there was going to be a lot of news for the next couple of years and hired me because I could speak French. Okay. <laughs> you had the right language at the right time. That's right. In the well, right place. In, in, in Canada? Come on. It's ridiculous that people don't take advantage of this two facets of our world. I, I mean, I'm really amazed at the 
paucity of bilingual English Canadians. I think it's a great shame and they're missing an amazing experience from my point of view. Let's just go there for a sec because I want to hear more about that. Like, Why, why do you think that uh, we're missing out on things by not being able to speak French? And let, let me preface that by saying that I've made a decision in the last two weeks to relearn French because I, I took French immersion until grade five and I, something within me has made me think, I really want to learn French because I'd like to think and, and uh, communicate in a different language. Well, absolutely. And one quarter of your fellow citizens speak that language and a very large proportion speak only that language. There are unilingual French Canadians as well. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because just simply because it's the right thing to do and it's fun to be able to talk to your neighbors and actually understand what they're saying. But beyond that, consider the situation of English Canadians. You're constantly fighting for, we are constantly fighting for our culture vis-a-vis the giant next door. We have our own cop show. We have our own lawyer show. We have, we, we protect our music industry by promoting Canadian content on the radio. We, we do all this to, to say how different we are from the United States. But in, but in fact, we're wallowing in a sea of American culture and contributing to it and being part of it. You know, if we can send Neil Young down to the States and, and, and play rock and roll, it doesn't mean that we're sort of totally alienated and, and uh, unrepresentative in, in the cultural life of the continent. If you're a French Canadian, you don't want to go to New York or LA to do it. If you're at the top of your game in French, as a French Canadian, Montreal, So it's an incredible city in French for music, movies, art, dance, orchestra, whatever it is, they're doing it at the top of their game in the French side. And really, it's the farm league in the greater North American side, if you want to look at it like that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't disrespect English Canadian culture. I'm just talking about the difference between being part of a little nodule of French-speaking culture in the middle of North America mm-hmm. and being absolutely determined. You know what's on the license plates in Quebec? is Je me souviens. Souviens. I remember. Yeah. And it's, I remember my language, my culture, where I come from. And it's absolutely passionate. And it's a part of the life there. Television is is so different the Johnny Carsons or the Carsons or the Stephen Colberts are there in French with talk shows and arts and variety and entertainment and music and rock and roll that is quite different from what's happening in English Canada and quite different from what's happening anywhere in the world. On New Year's Eve, the whole province comes to a stop because people watch this midnight bye-bye. It's called bye-bye. And the year number, bye-bye, 72, a goodbye, 72. Okay. Uh, It's a two-hour variety show sending up the events of the last year. And it's it's absolutely hilarious. It's uh, in the the whole of the Quebec arts and cultural scene gets involved in the actors. And and it's very funny and usually very funny, very witty, very pertinent, and utterly incomprehensible to anybody who doesn't speak French. I mean, it's meaningless. (laughs) Who's that guy? What's funny about that? Sure. So it's, it's, it's like having... Two families. It's it's great. Wow. Well, it, 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 oh, you know, I really appreciate you saying that because uh, actually I lived there for six months in 2008 during the winter and people were asking, what are you doing here during the winter? Why don't you come during the summer? Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed living in Montreal. I just thought it was just a, a really captivating city. So much to do, such a winter culture there, such a vibrant place and uh, so much passion as well. I, I hope to live there again at some point and be able to speak French fluently yeah. instead of terribly. When I first got there, I, I had a I had a job offer in Toronto. 
<laughs> and I, I arrived in New York because it was cheaper to fly to New York than to any place in Canada from, from Britain. And I uh, arrived in New York and a friend drove me up to Montreal. And I just never got past. I never got up the 401 to the job in Toronto. I stayed in Montreal because I liked it so much. Oh, right on. I, I thought it was a blast right yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I took you on a left uh, turn there yeah, talking about okay. the French language, but you said that it was important as a reporter to go and know the language because you're going to be able to get in there and understand the stories a bit better. I didn't realize that at the time. I mean, I, I didn't know French for that reason, but I, I mean, it's always quite obvious I mean, that really you can't report properly on your own country, for heaven's sake, if you don't speak the language. I mean, no, no doubt. Uh, they hired me because I, I was known to speak French. I, I can't remember how that, I mean... It's a small community, English um, journalism or whatever, and uh, probably people at the press club knew or something. I have no idea how how it was. People were aware that I was a, a French speaker, and uh, you know, a degree of fluency of is what they're, that they required. So you you fell into reporting. In, yeah, uh, I went from being you know writing about the wheat board for a, a Russian audience um, to running around to. Press conferences, news events, fires, floods, famines in Quebec, doing daily reporting for, for English CBC radio. Okay. Well, walk us through a little bit what that was like. So you would get an assignment in the morning and you'd have to go out and do oh, it. Yeah, it's a radio station. It's a radio station, radio and TV station. You get assigned to go off and do something or, you know, people would have longer projects and would be out of the daily rotation. But there's a kind of diet of news that happens in any big city. There's police stuff. There's, trade union stuff, there's strikes, there's there's business stories, there's, you know, any amount. Of, let's do something on the homeless, let's do something on the flower show that's opening, I don't know, anything. Did you enjoy it when you first started? Oh, I thought it was a hoot, yeah. Because I'd never thought of applying for a, a reporting job in radio because I still had a bit of an English accent and I just assumed it, it would rule out doing any on-air stuff. But the, the, uh, the fact that they were trapped with a desire for a French speaker that meant that that impediment was uh, not there anymore. I don't know why. Um, it's, Canada is such an odd place uh, for that, you know, that really uh, there were very few people, it seemed, that who had grown and grown up and been educated in Montreal who could actually speak both of the city's languages. Wow. Anyway. I don't want to go on about that. But no, it's okay. It's quite extraordinary. Okay. Well, I, I I always like talking about Montreal, and it's interesting mm -hmm. to sort of hear somebody's perspective from a different decade than I visited in. So, uh, but it, it I don't think too much has changed, even though probably a lot has. Anyway, so <laughs> you uh, you're a reporter in Montreal. You're working for uh, CBC Radio Canada. Yeah. And then what was your next big? Move? Oh well, yeah. The next thing that happened, if if you want to look at it that way, was. Um, I stayed until there, there was a referendum in 1980, uh, the first referendum in Quebec, mm -hmm. and, and, and I stayed to cover that. For, so I worked in uh, radio in Montreal for four years. And just as the referendum was coming up, the CBC has a bureau in London, in England, and uh, my boss asked me if I wanted to go there. Again, this is something kind of a quirk of Canadian nest, if you ask me, because I was so good at telling a foreign story, that is to say, <laughs> the story in Quebec. Yeah. You know, I say, uh, hey, Colin, this is not a foreign story. This is part of Canada. But, you know, he and the other people that made this decision were, were pleased by the fact that I was able to get under the surface of Quebec in a way that they hadn't seen before. So by going to things. By going to, to things. Yeah, going to things and talking to people and, you know, 
sort of trying to do it here now is that really if you want to give a portrait of a place you've really got to find people to tell you stories that's it sure yeah definitely but so you had a natural knack for that 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 uh it seems so i mean i don't i don't quite see it but but um i, I looking back the the one strong point that i have is that i have generally quite a short attention span but i'm a very fast study i i, I really without blowing my own trumpet too loudly as a journalist i was able to grasp the elements of a very complicated and tricky situation quickly and make sense out of it for myself and and to explain it well if i was looking to say why was he a good journalist i would say you know in, in the first place he talked to people and in the second place had a quick study well Okay, because I have a couple questions about that, because for my own curiosity, that's something I think that is a really great skill, to be able to piece some information together, and in a very short period of time, turn it around, make sense of it, and disseminate a lot of information so people can understand a story yeah. in a very clear, coherent way. So, was that something that you developed in school, or came naturally, or what do you think? I have no idea. It, it didn't occur to me to think about it. Just like, <laughs> no, really. It, yeah. it didn't occur to me to analyze it. There was no such thing as a journalism school, as far as I know, at the time. Uh, certainly not, not where I was educated. We wouldn't have thought it was suitable for a university education at all. Although British journalists would, would train on the job and learn shorthand and all sorts of skills that I wish I had. But I'm just saying that the idea of it as an academic discipline was absent in, in Britain at the time, for sure. Um, I don't know. You sometimes you just fall into something that you have a knack for. The fact that I spoke French was was purely accidental. I did a, an exchange program with a, a, a boy at a French school. My school arranged it when I was twelve, and uh, he came and lived in our house for three weeks. And I went to live with them in Paris and their country place in Corrèze, in the center of France, for three weeks. And at the end of the second week, I I, I went down to breakfast, and everything had I couldn't understand a word. I'd only done you know one class a week in French at school or something like that. So I had just kind of rudiments. But I came down to breakfast and I could I could hear the words in a way that I hadn't. It all been sort of bubble bath, bubble bath, bubble bath. And suddenly I could hear what he was saying, what she was saying, and uh, not make sense. I didn't have the vocabulary, but I could understand the language. I don't know if this makes sense to anybody, but it was like being a small child and just absorbing it through your ears and I still think that's the best way to learn language is to absorb it through your ears. Turn off your mind and open your ears and, and, and just listen to the patterns and the rhythms and the noises and the sounds that it make and try to imitate them. It sounds kind of fatuous, but it was night and day, that experience of overnight being able to separate speech out into words that I could then ask. What's that word? What's that word? What's that word? And I came back, I could speak French. Nice. Effortlessly. No, absolutely effortlessly. And I had no idea that this was unusual or talent or a gift. And, and my school didn't suggest that I do a career in languages, even though they were sending me off to French poetry competitions because I was better French speaker than the people in the foreign language department. <laughs> um, it, it's just an odd little thing. And, and similarly, like the, if you talk about the skill in journalism of being able to assimilate a complex situation very quickly and, and make sense of it and explain it to somebody. It wasn't a learned or studied or labored thing. Just something you had. It's, it's not rocket science either. 
I, I mean, I don't think it's that that hugely difficult, frankly. Well, yeah, I, I, I find it a little bit difficult. I, it's something that I feel I'd like to improve upon. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure I could improve on it. I mean, I've been doing it for 40 years, but I'm sure I could improve on it as well. Uh, but the actu- I'm just saying that the, the actual thing that you do as a journalist, you go out and spend a day talking to people, watching people, listening to a meeting, um, making some phone calls, seeing you find an expert to explain it to you, all of those kinds of things, and then coming back and trying to write 200 words or 1,000 words of your newspaper guy about it. It's not that complicated. Some people are better at it. Some people are better writers than others. But I don't feel that that was, you know, sort of, it's not like being a an orchestral conductor or a rocket scientist or or a you know a surgeon or or something that engineer things that take you know decades to perfect it's a knack yeah no, fair <laughs> enough I, I think it's a pretty great skill to have but okay so continuing along here you talked about being offered a job uh, in 1980 in london that's right and london is the fire station for cbc it was the only bureau in that hemisphere uh, apart from Moscow, there was a bureau in Moscow, but the, the English radio service had no bureau between London and Australia and no bureau in Africa, no bureau in the Middle East. No, So I had an incredible territory to go to and just spent the time flying around doing stories on stuff that happened in Europe, the Middle East from 1980 to 1989. Wow. Well, first off, to start off with, was it an easy choice to take that job? Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I'd never expected. I would have stayed in Montreal forever. I was telling you how much I liked it, and I, I was interested in the work and didn't have any plans. They came to me. I didn't sort of say, oh, when, as soon as the job comes uh, open <laughs> overseas, I'd like to go. I hadn't thought of it. Yeah. Uh, but once it was suggested and, and offered, I said, wow, I don't have to go to this trade union conference in uh, Sherbrooke, I can go to Warsaw or Beirut or Algeria, wherever. uh, And it's going to be really interesting. Nice. So immediately at that point, you realized, okay, I'm going to be doing some globetrotting with this new job and this is going to be great. Absolutely. Okay. Well, can you break down the first uh, first year? So the first year having that job. The first thing I did when I got off the plane in London was, I know the first week I was there, there was a military coup in Turkey. And I went down to um, Ankara, covered the, the military coup down there tanks in the streets, martial music on the radio, all that classic. Very shortly afterwards, Poland became a critical part of the the sort of long, slow collapse of the communist world. Poland's economy kind of collapsed and the food shortages and eventually a strike, which is a, a solidarity movement and so on, started up. And I did that for in and out of Poland for the first year, at least six or seven times until martial law was declared in, I think, 81. And that was that was really interesting as well. You have this sort of crack in the facade of a, a rigid doctrinaire communist state, supposedly, and workers on the streets and barricading themselves in the shipyard in Gdansk up on the uh, north coast and uh, challenging the government, you know, would the Soviet Union send in tanks? Well, you know, you know, yeah. Uh, and eventually they, they didn't send in tanks, but they made the Polish army in, in post-martial law. So that was 81. In the meantime, I was doing 
Belfast a few times because the, the, there was still a lot of trouble in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, first year, Beirut. I went to Beirut the first time in 1980 or 81. Uh, a war started between Iran and Iraq, the first of the three Gulf Wars that I covered. Um, so I went down to went down to Baghdad and then to Tehran and, and did some of the war there, which was pretty intense. By 1981... All the collapse of the Marcos regime in the Philippines. I went down to the Philippines. It's actually a big territory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always works. Um, and that, that was really interesting as well because I'd been there a couple of times for other issues and uh, suddenly the Marcos regime was Ferdinand Marcos, classic dictator, him and his wife, Imelda. Imelda, her shoe uh, collection. I remember her. Collection, yeah. And uh, I was there for a few days as the, the, the pressure, they called it people power, you know, the, the pressure of millions of people on the streets gradually getting closer and closer to the presidential palace and the army surrounding the palace and the machine gun nests and all of this. And uh, then one night they decided to go for it. And this column of people headed up by a group of nuns largely Catholic country. The church is very strong. And the, the nuns, the, the, the religious were all on the side of the demonstration to finally get rid of this um, kleptocratic uh, dictatorship. And uh, just going over the gates of the presidential palace with those people is really quite something. Yeah. You're going over the gates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's let's hear about it. So well, what's it? I mean, it's a very high iron gates and the Gradually, they inched up there, and then everybody heard that on the radio that Marcos had helicoptered off. He was taken off to, to Hawaii. So who's in the palace? What, what's the army going to do? And they decided to go for it, and the, the whole thing, just people clambering over the walls, clambering over the gates into the presidential palace, up the stairs, papers flying around as they ransacked it. Imelda's shoe collection, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it was magic. Because uh, it's just so, so movie-like, and, it, and it's the, the, the way that it w worked out, and the, the, the drama of the scenes, and the, the huge crowds, and the, the, the excitement of actually winning after decades of this this very repressive regime. It was it was quite intense as well. Wow! So when you were doing that job, was that radio or television that you were working? I for? was doing radio mostly then. I was the radio correspondent. Okay, so in that particular situation, are you watching this all unfold partly as a journalist and partly as an observer and uh, in, a, in a foreign country and just sort of being blown away by what's happening? Or if you can go back to that particular time. Oh, what's the, what's, oh uh, the, the idea is, is, I mean, you can't totally separate yourself from it because it, it being in the middle of a huge crowd climbing over the gates of a presidential palace to overthrow a regime yeah. is kind of exciting. But at the same time, <laughs> You're not there to experience this. You're there to absorb it, reflect on it, constantly grabbing people to talk to, to get put them on the radio. And you're you're there to file that there is more of a gift in, in this thing, in, in journalism, I, I, that kind of journalism anyway, in being a good logistics person than there is in being a great writer or a, you know, a good interviewer or something like that. Because if you don't get it back on the air, in a timely fashion, you might as well not be there. You're constantly worrying about, do I have a phone line? Do I have a telex? Uh, this is before the internet. You have to understand. Of course. Yeah. Um, are we going to have to ship tapes? Are we going to have to do this? Are we going to have to do that? So very often it was kind of like being 
a sophisticated travel agent trying to get to the right place at the right time, but always having a way to get the stuff out. Okay, this is pretty exciting, but I've got to be on the air. It's midnight Philippines time. That's something like late afternoon. So we got the evening broadcast coming up um, in, in Canada. I have to be back at a phone somewhere or at a radio station. So worrying about breaking away, am I going to miss something if I go now? And <laughs> Um, how am I going to get through this crowd? There's no no taxis. You know, <laughs> we'll walk for miles and miles and miles to get there. So it, it's a it's a logistical challenge that any journalist will tell you that how am I going to file is your obsession most of the day. Not anymore because there's just this hosepipe of internet access where you can send high quality audio video almost instantly. But then it was a real especially for television it was a huge challenge. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to, to hear that. I love that. That's, that's great. I'm just so so curious as well, too, with this nine years that you spent working out of London and going to various places. First of all, that Philippine story is incredible. It's amazing that you were there to personally be on the ground. Well, that's part that. of it as well, is, is, is you don't just sit and wait for the phone to ring. You have to try to for, not foresee events, but just feel something's brewing up in some place and we should get there. And discuss it with the people who control it. I mean, there, there's a, a, a sort of a chain of command. You have the reporters on the ground and you have an assignment desk and you have managers that worry about the finances and stuff. And there has to be a kind of general thing. Okay, we're going to put Brown into Manila because it looks like Marcos might really go this time. And you better get there quickly because it may happen tomorrow. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but part of that is to have the, the feel for how things are changing and, and trying to get to places get in position in a timely fashion to, to experience this stuff. And would you go solo or did you have somebody with you or? Of radio, I was mostly alone. Okay. When, um, I started doing television quite early, but and usually I would then work with local pickup crews and whatnot until I was doing television full time and eventually didn't have time to do radio. But they're, they're slightly different disciplines. I mean, it's inside baseball. I don't think it's that interesting, but it's, just, it's a slightly different approach. In many ways, there's just a lot more freedom in radio because you, you, you don't have such a technical challenge of cameras and equipment and gear and how to get transmit the pictures back and uh, uh, the, the imperative to have pictures slows you down. Sure. Well, like I'm, I'm curious in in those situations when you're you're going in by yourself, are you banding together with other journalists from other sometimes? News? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, or, or or also, very often hire local translators, or often people who work for local news outlets. A Filipino journalist who's working for a paper there mm-hmm. will be moonlighting being a guide dog for me. If you like, I mean, actually, the Philippines is easy because there's so much English there. But if you're in a country where you don't speak good Arabic and it's an, an Arabic speaking country. You really need a, an interpreter. They're usually known in the jargon as fixers. Okay. Somebody who will work as an assistant, maybe doesn't have the, the, the journalism skills or the perspective, if you like, of how to explain this thing to, to a foreign audience. How am I going to make this, how am I going to make this accessible to Canadians? The local person probably doesn't have that, but they have incredibly more local journalism skills than, than I would have in the places where I don't speak the language. They'd know people, know, you know, be able to phone up the foreign ministry, get this, come phone up the interior ministry, phone up the police, you know, see about, you know, arrange something, talk to this university professor, you know, they'd be able to fix things. That's why they're called fixers. Sounds invaluable. And you, yeah, and you, you try to have, if you're doing what I did, which is that sort of fireman thing, 
We just sort of pop in and put out fires all over the world. You try to nurture a network of people that you can work with in every place you're likely to go that's getting busy. You mentioned Beirut a few times there that uh, yeah. you spent some time in I Beirut. Was there a lot from 81 onwards. The big year for that was 82. The uh, All this is ancient history, but I don't know why anybody on Pender Island would be interested. But uh, Israel invaded Beirut in in. There'd been a long problem with, from an Israeli point of view, a problem with the fact that uh, Lebanon was a sanctuary for the Palestinian Palestine Liberation Organization and other Palestinian organizations. It was a, a sanctuary and a base for them. And um, Israel always regarded that as something that needed to be cleaned out. And it's a very complex country that was in the middle of a civil war from the mid-80s among a whole range of different religious groups and political factions and so on. It's a very interesting country. Anyway, in 82, Israel made a very bad decision to a full-scale full invasion, and uh, which ended with a, a really nasty massacre on some Palestinian refugee camps, Sabra and Shatila. It's unforgettable. It's about 1,200 civilians killed, uh, women, children, uh, which... Uh, was committed by a Christian militia uh, under the supervision of the Israeli army, surrounded the camps and um, protected the Christians as they went in and committed these atrocities. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot of Beirut. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where exactly to go with that. Cause it's, no, it's, 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 I'm not sure either. Um, it, it, it's, it, I mean, it, it's not just Beirut. It's been uh, what my life was like then. It was very often things of that nature. And um, what to say? It, it's, uh, you know, I'd go there and, and, and I was, summer of 88, I was there for sort of two months at a stretch as the, the city was under siege by the... The city was divided between Muslims in the West and Christians in the East and the Muslim side on the West. The, the, the Israelis didn't finally invade there, but they just surrounded it and put it under siege. And we were inside. And it was extremely dangerous and very, uh, very affecting for me anyway. And yet it, it's such a fascinating country, you know. It's at the penumbra of all of these different cultures of the Middle East just sits there on the Mediterranean surrounded by all of these different strands of Middle Eastern history. There's there's Armenians, there's lots of different Christian sects, Maronites who are in the majority of very unique uh, Lebanese phenomenon of a, of a sort of Arab Christian sect, many different kinds of Muslims. And it would it was always used by the various nations in the Middle East as a kind of a proxy battleground. Hmm. So Iran would have its, it'd be supplying arms and logistics and money to its militias and Israel would be supporting the phalangists and Egypt would be supporting this Sunni Muslims and, and so on. And, and just getting around in that country when it was at war was, was extremely difficult. It had no central government. It was, it was just a patchwork of different warlord fiefdoms. You have all these different press passes hidden about your person. And as you got to a roadblock, you'd 
I hope that you are pulling out the right press pass to give to the guy with a Kalashnikov who's pointing it through the window saying, where are you going? Well, really? Yeah. Um, well, what sort of different press passes? Well, you know, the, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine would have its little neighborhood. It's like, it's like a New York gang war, if you want to put it that way. They just have a, a small area of the city would be controlled by them. And if you wanted to go in there, talk to anybody, you'd have to go through a roadblock to get through. And... They would want, who are you? You know, you're working for the CIA, whatever suspicions they might have. And everybody there is, is living in a very dangerous war zone in, in this whole city. It was a quite, quite extraordinary war. And you as a job are dropping in to these places. Yeah, that's to, right, which to... is a lot easier than being than living there. I mean, this, people say, oh, it must have been very dangerous. Yeah, well, imagine living through it for five or six years. No, I, I, I can't. Uh, and, and, you know, every time I was in one of those situations I, I, and coming back or talking on the air about it, you know, and people say, you know, it's very, very dangerous where you're at. And I say, yeah, but, you know, I just saw this old lady walk into the grocery store. <laughs> you know, and she, yeah, something might fall on her head at any minute, but as it might on mine. But I, I just say to put it in perspective that yes, we're intrepid and we're going to this dangerous place, but, but we get to go out after six weeks or two months and we get to have a certain amount of protection from what we do. Like in Lebanon, most of the factions wanted Western journalists to be witnessing. And so they would offer some kind of protection, if you like, which doesn't protect you from being bombed or sniped at or, you know, just being in the middle of some firefight, but it does give you some kind of status. Whereas, you know, most civilians in those places are totally powerless, utterly powerless. Did you ever at any point rethink your career decision because of situations that came up or were you always pretty adamant about it? Like, I, yep. I, I, I liked it, you know, I, I found it fascinating. And uh, no, I never, never considered doing anything else once I was started doing it. But it, I, I guess it, it sounded like from your post in London that you were going into one tumultuous situation after another, though. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't interested anyway in in doing features about London taxi drivers learn how to learn all the streets or any of those, you know, <laughs> British Britain's cute and quaint. So I was, uh, you know, I could rather. Shoot myself. Um, it was, I, I thought it was important in principle, not necessarily that a Canadian would witness this particular atrocity in Lebanon or, or any, any one specific thing, but I thought it was important that there would be Canadian eyes and ears on the world bringing a Canadian perspective to people on the morning radio and on the national at night, that this would be a better country if it were better informed about world events without having saying, oh, you need to know that because we're doing a lot of business in the Middle East and we should know that this or that situation will change stock prices. I don't mean in a practical way. I mean, just in a philosophical, how a, a modern democratic country should be, it should have tentacles of people diplomats and journalists that are out there plugged into the rest of the world and informing them, informing the, the country, informing itself about its place in the world and being able to play a role. And, and, and certainly people here vote for a, a national government that's going to make international decisions. And they should, in my submission, they should vote on it with some knowledge of what, what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I thought it was uh, an important thing and, and that, uh, 
if some other places were dangerous, well, that what do we do? Not go? No, we don't not go. We go. Amazing. What was in that nine-year period, what do you think your best work was that you did, the work that you were most proud of? Oh, I, I don't know. I, the thing about radio and television is that it's it's very much what happened in school. You know, if you want <laughs> what happened in school today, I am focused on the next newscast. I may have a, a long-range plan to do a short series or something, but really, I'm there to tell you, here's what's happening today. And so... Joe, one of my colleagues, Joe Schlesinger, who died last year, uh, died this year, actually, um, who did it for more years than I did. He always used to say that, look, we give you the menu. If you want to eat, you go somewhere else. But broadcast news is the menu that tells you what's happening in the restaurant today. <laughs> but if you actually want to eat something, you really need to read a newspaper or a book or, you know, we're trying to give you the best informed picture of what's happening where I am today. Mm. And um, bear in mind that a two-minute piece of television has approximately 100 words in it, including all those spoken by whoever's interviewed. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's miniature painting. Did you ever have a desire to move into something beyond that, that had more information that was being able to provide it? Or were you happy that, okay, this is this is the block of time I have and I'm able to use this time? I, I like that challenge. I mean, you don't, you, you don't complain about a miniature painter because he only paints small pictures. Hey, why don't you do it like that guy Van Gogh, you know, the big or Rubens, do some Rubens. You know, yeah. He's a miniature painter. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought I was... Because of the, the the factors we were talking about before, this sort of relatively short intention, attention span with an ability to grasp and move on, I, I was kind of suited to this particular way of dealing with the world. Mm -hmm. So, but you don't then have really a body of work that you can say, "Well, this was finally polished and um, perfect." Mm. But it sounds like you were probably really in the moment a lot. That it sounded this is yeah, a, and, yeah. And, and and a lot of the time, it, as I say, it's 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 logistics. It's 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 being able to do it and to to get through today with material to explain it and get it on the air and and start again tomorrow. It's it's it, it has a kind of um, energy to it because of the the the, uh, the deadlines that you're coping with and and the the difficulty of the places and it's all one package as to which one makes you better at it which one doesn't uh, you know which is important which isn't but to be able to to actually do it and function in those places or go to an earthquake i mean uh, I don't know how many earthquakes I went to, but it's it's like extreme camping. <laughs> if you're on your own, how are you going to carry a generator and the the computers and the the the, the cameras and the, the and all of this stuff and getting there and everything's broken. You know, there's no power, there's no electricity, there's no transport, there's no and it's it's a real conundrum of of uh, like aid workers have it as well. How are we going to get there? How are we going to make it work? What how are we going to start functioning? And do something useful in a circumstance like this where everything's missing or broken, you know. Uh, or the wars, you know, you have no certainty that anybody's going to look after you. There is a satisfaction in being able to do it. 
Absolutely. Well, let's just use the scenario of working in a war zone. And what did you do for your downtime in particular situations? And, and actually, the second question to that is that how easy did you find it to wind down after a day of work? Oh, there's not a huge amount of downtime in this, in that kind of work, particularly working for working to Canadian news deadlines. You're very often up all night and then the stuff that you're covering is usually happening in the day. So you don't, you, you sort of napping and grabbing sleep when you can. Seriously. And, Whoa. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then trying to stay, stay healthy and alive, but it, it's very, um, rigorous. If you're, if you're trying to make deadlines that, you know, eight hour time difference, imagine, you know, sort of, uh, radio is very critical in the morning. You have to sort of have something on the air by six. And then you've got all the time zones going across. So you maybe got four hours of having to be on the air at six in the morning Canadian time. Well, that may be like four in the afternoon, Beirut. And then back at the other end of the day, television goes on the air at 10 and 11 at night, which is early in the morning in Beirut. So how do you juggle all of these different deadlines and still have time to go out and experience and witness what you're supposed to be there for? Wow. That's actually the problem now is that since... There are no deadlines anymore that, that everybody, all of the journalists I know are filing for radio, television, and the internet. And the deadline is like 30 seconds from whenever you got something. You're not aiming for the 10 o'clock news. You're aiming for the news 30 seconds from now. And ever since the introduction of satellite news channels, CNN and so on, and, uh, News World in Canada, 24-hour news channels, the demands for content meant that journalists more and more don't get to go out and do stuff and therefore are less useful and there's actually less point in them being there. If all that I've done during the day is do 20 live hits from the roof of a hotel, <laughs> how do I know what I'm talking about? Um, wow. So that became a real issue for all of us, I think, uh, in broadcasting, starting, gosh, in the 90s. Time and you, you watch the newscast now, and you just get endless babble of reporters talking to each other, and and very little produced, carefully thought out film presentations of what happened and what's going on, mm -hmm. um, because there's so much airtime to fill, and and infinite elasticity on the internet, of course. <laughs> I love that description, an infinite elasticity. Uh, yeah, so when when it was the 80s and you were doing the work, so when you said that you were busy all the, the time. The, the best year, I'd, I'd tell you, okay, the vintage year, yeah, yeah, the greatest yeah. year of years okay. is 1989. Why? Because uh, leave aside what happened in the early part of the year. By April, I was in Beijing for the first time covering the student uprising, which ended with the Tiananmen Square Massacre. That was uh, June, June of 1989. And I went pretty well straight from there to Poland and from Poland to Hungary and from Hungary to East Germany and back to Hungary again, then back to East Germany. And from, oh, and then the wall fell down. The Berlin Wall came down. <laughs> of course and then I did. was in Czechoslovakia. No, oh, there's a new government in Czechoslovakia. Then I was in Romania. And uh, finally, the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu and his lovely wife, Ended up in dead in a ditch uh, on Christmas Day of uh, December 1989. So that whole year was kind of a revolution roadshow. It was. I, I often thought I should have just stopped then, because there was never been another year like it of, of just 
astounding things happening, the whole communist system in upheaval for, for the whole years, and some falling, and China notably not. Did you know it when you were in it at the time, or did you? At the time, it was just a roller coaster, um, and and sometimes, when it's extreme violence, it, it's one thing, but sometimes it's not. I mean, the, the the Berlin Wall opening was, on the surface, a totally a good news story. Hey, we've been sitting with that wall for whatever it was, thirty, forty years, and, and and it's open. People are streaming across and can't believe it. I never thought this would happen, and so it's. It's like a big shake in the kaleidoscope. You have to see Europe in a different fashion. What are they going to do? Are they going to be two Germanys? Is there going to be one Germany? And all of those things come to mind when you just see this sudden change in the situation in, in a moment. Uh, but by total accident, they, they weren't intending to open the wall at all. They had something else in mind, and, and, and just a series of uh, miscommunications ended up with the uh, the gates being opened. I, I'm totally unaware of that. Oh, uh, it, it's long and complicated. It's sort of inside baseball. But I was there for a meeting of the East German Central Committee. The, there had been a crisis brewing because China had had this uprising against the communist regime, which had been put down mercilessly by the Chinese army. But it had echoes in all the other communist countries People were leaving East Germany in droves going through Hungary, and the Hungarian government was allowing it to happen. They were facilitating this, this drain of people, which was a huge crisis for East Germany. Poland, the, the solidarity movement was back after having been shut down by a martial law like nine years before and, and about to win an election. Czechoslovakia was on the brink of collapse. Gorbachev was running around Europe going to see each of these countries and saying, hey, guys, you're on your own. It's not going to be uh, Budapest. It's not going to be Prague again. We're not coming in. We're not sending in the army. If if you lose it, you know, good luck. Dostvedania. And each country, one after the other, sort of challenged the, the, the rulers and, and often won. I mean, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Romania all, all had dramatic changes in regime. So it was definitely had a sense of this history being made in front of your very eyes and, and trying not to be carried away by it. Like this, this idea that, that you need a kind of detachment, even if you're going over the wall of the presidential palace. You know, it's not your country that's suddenly free. And, and is it going to be suddenly free or are we going to have some new monster? So, there, there is always this detachment of t- trying to produce a sober, reasoned picture of what's going out with us saying, my God, the wall just came down. You won't <laughs> believe it. I never seen nothing like it. it um, and it's all, it's all going to be different from now on, but I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, notwithstanding, you have this sense of a dramatic event that might have historical implications. And, and, and also it's just exciting because you've been going through the Berlin Wall for years and, and witnessing the craziness. The compact, you know, the contrast between the two Germanys was just so extreme from a vibrant, lively, rich city. And you get on the other side and it's gray and it's lit by one light bulb and everybody's gloomy <laughs> and nobody will look you in the eye. Um, and it's open, but where's the balance? Where's the, what does it really mean? What am I going to say that I'm not going to regret tomorrow or next week or a year from now? Yeah, for sure. So this detachment is really important and. It comes back to what you were asking about 
functioning in a war zone is that I'm not there as some photographers or others are for the rush of it. I'm not, I'm not a tourist there on a fairground ride. And at the same time, I'm witnessing things that are, are painful to witness. I'm talking to people that are painful to listen to. I'm, whether it's an active war zone or a refugee camp afterwards and the people are, you know, in terrible shape. But I'm there to do my job of, of bearing witness back to the Canadian audience. And I, I don't have the luxury of letting my empathy run away with me. So in fact, the sort of how do you cope question that you were asking earlier is answered by that, is that I was always really quite detached on the ground. Some, some days would be a lot harder than others, but generally I'm not allowing myself to... I'm like a, a cop going to a road accident. You know, he doesn't allow his concern for the injured children to impede his work. His work is to go there and do what he can to rescue and save and, and keep the traffic going and all the rest of it. And it's the same thing. Uh, the consequences come when I got home. I know I, that I would be, um, I would find it very difficult to, to readjust to, to, uh, you know, getting up and going to the, uh, the coffee shop in the morning in London. It's kind of strange. So with that difficulty of readjusting once you got back home, would you just be seeking another opportunity to head back out and go to a different country? And it, like, would that help it or would time help once you were back at home? Uh, there's a lot of concern about, uh, about post-traumatic stress among journalists. We go for years to these things. I personally think that it's rather overdiagnosed as an illness, and I've been criticized for saying so by one of the experts on it. Probably won't. Oh, I will tell that story. There's a doctor who came to talk to us once at an, a meeting we had in Toronto of, of foreign correspondents, and uh, he's an expert on post-traumatic stress disorder. And he, he gave this pres presentation about how this is just right after 9-11, when more people were getting involved in that kind of coverage. I'd been doing it for decades by that time. And I asked him, you know, he, he, he was presenting this study about how it was a, a growing and really serious problem in news organizations throughout the country, and he'd got this study to prove it. And I asked him, you know, how big's the study? I mean, how many people have you talked to? I mean, I don't, I don't know five people that regularly go to wars in this country. More now because of 9-11, but, but even so, it could, we could uh, have a meeting in, you know, two tables at Starbucks probably. And he said, oh, 11 people. I said, you're drawing all these conclusions about this? And what were those 11 people? Well, some of them were badly damaged by watching the coverage of 9-11 on TV. They're working in the, the newsroom and they, they're exposed to these images all day of the towers coming down. And... Um, Okay, so is everybody who's watched TV uh, going to be hit by this? And I, I criticized the thing of his study, and he later has said, you know, oh, there's macho guys like Brown, you know, who thinks you just suck it up and go to these wars and nobody's affected and people are making it up. And I never said anything like that. And some of my closest and dearest friends suffer to this day quite badly from this. It's a, it can be extremely debilitating. And I've been thinking about it lately because I was w with a couple of friends in London who are, you know, uh, troubled by it. And I, I don't think I was, all of us are affected by it. 
all of us are affected by by living that kind of life. But it, it hasn't struck me as being this hyper-awareness and, and inability to concentrate and constant nightmares and, and basically a, a thoroughly debilitating mental illness that's quite difficult to treat and cure. And many, many soldiers suffer from it. And I, I think that, it, as I say, it's sort of overdiagnosed. And I wouldn't dream of counter-diagnosing person X and say, oh, how can she have it? She could possibly have post-traumatic stress. She only went to two wars. I went to 20. You know, it's not like that. It doesn't, you know, the, the, the extent of the injury doesn't depend on necessarily how hard you hit yourself with the hammer. It, it, you know, some people are affected differently with different exposures to things. But it's become such a cliche that the guy comes back from the war and uh, he gets flashbacks and yada, 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 either climbs a tower and shoots some people or climbs a tower and rescues some people or whatever. It's become a, a movie trope. I think I'm affected by the life that I led, but I, I don't think I'm chronically affected by it. I sometimes feel uh, an, an intense melancholy about events as I see them now. Uh, I, I look at the Rohingya situation in Burma. I went to Burma a lot. I've done a lot of work in, in, in Burma. And just, here we go again. This defenseless, powerless minority rooted up tortured, raped, shot, burned out of their homes, sent across the sea to some desert camp. And um, I look at it and I just, we, we learn nothing. And actually today I was watching Aung San Suu Kyi, who I regarded as an enormous heroine when she was, <laughs> I was, I was going into Burma and clandestinely arranging to meet her and uh, and going to quite a lot of risk to cover her side of the Burmese equation before she was, while well, she was still under house arrest and before she won the Nobel Prize as an icon of democracy. And she was at the court in The Hague today defending the Burmese army that has committed this atrocity. And I, I sat and watched it and I thought, this woman is the most single, most disappointing person that I've met, you know, of all the people I've ever met, this woman is the single most disappointing person. I was very impressed with her back in the 90s, talking to her and thinking, my God, she's got a backbone of steel, this woman, and she talks about democracy and representation and, and inclusiveness and uh, understanding the difficulties of minorities in Burma. And here she is defending war criminals lying about it, denying it. So I say, you know, yeah, I'm affected in some ways by this and mostly in a kind of sadness that I get into seeing it all happening over and over and over again. Hmm. As if, you know, my being there and saying, hey, they're doing something bad, as if that would stop it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm, not, I'm not that sort of naive or simplistic, but it's just a sort of wash of, oh, no, not again. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for being so open and expressive about that. I appreciate that. I think that's amazing. I think that's uh, going to be amazing for a lot of people to hear. I think I really appreciate uh, your openness about that. And I super appreciate you telling stories from that decade of uh, being in really unique, amazing, life-changing situations. 
I'm just blown away that you've had so many experiences. And we're just in the 80s so far right now. No, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, let's, let's fast forward to the 90s a little bit here. Because we talked about uh, China and Beijing upstairs a little bit. And that was a huge part of your life, it sounds like. And I definitely want to make sure we talk about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, this is the after 89, there was this sort of uh, collapse of communist countries throughout Europe. Uh, and the counter example of, of China where the regime preferred to shoot down demonstrators and, and uh, turn the tide that way. Uh, and I imagined that this was going to be, it was an outlier and that it was, that it was inevitable that this current of history would, would eventually come around in, in, in China. And so shortly after the, the whole thing calmed down in the early part of 1990, the, the bureau in Beijing came open and I said, oh, I'd like to go. So I moved to, moved to China with the assumption that it would be a matter of weeks, months, a year or two before the whole thing came around again and the Chinese communist regime was overthrown by the people. <laughs> I'm, I'm still. I'm laughing at myself. I'm still still waiting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> hasn't happened. No, no, definitely not. I, I had misread, having trumpeted the fact that I'm good at really grasping these complicated situations. I hadn't fully understood the whole dynamic of that thing in '89 in, in in China at the time, and it took me many years to to get a grip on it and and a feel for for the country that. Uh, it's so big and complex that it, it sort of consumed the next 20 odd years of my life. Well, let's hear a little bit about that because I know so little about China. And I, th I think that uh, this will be interesting for people to hear as well, too, from somebody who's spent close to two decades from what you said upstairs uh, yeah. within the country. I don't, I don't know exactly where to start this question, but well, maybe let's start it here. What is your uh, emotional attachment to the country at this point? Oh, very emotional. Not really. <sighs> It was it was a lot of work to learn the language, to be able to function in that society in in, in the way that it functions, and um, it's not a transportable skill in the sense that you know knowing Chinese is a party trick in a restaurant. You know, I can order from the Chinese menu, big deal. It's a very valuable skill for a journalist in China to be able to do that, to be able to function there, to know people, to to be able to speak, to go go around without an interpreter, and and. Uh, deal with people on their own terms without an extra body in the way. It's very important. And so it was a big investment of time and energy, and, and I'm still fascinated by it. But I was, by the time I left in 2011, I really was tired of being there. And I wasn't there sort of 12 months a year. I was I was still traveling. I covered, in between that, I covered the whole aftermath of 9-11 in Afghanistan and uh, the, the first Iraq war with George Bush and the second Iraq war with younger George Bush and a whole bunch of other stuff in all over Indonesia, the fall of Suharto in Indonesia, East Timor, the whole mess there. So all sorts of things would take me away and I'd go back home to China and, and keep on plugging away at trying to cover this big, unmanageable country and just do little stories that would explain aspects of it you know it's it's no good in china looking at oh we'll go to the parliament and like we'd cover parliament here and that will give us political stories we'll interview a few mps and and we'll have he says this he argues the opposite you know that uh, it's 
more of a conservative than it used to be before the election. You don't have any of that. It's it's all all of those all of those institutions that we would normally cover as journalists are set pieces. They're they're Potemkin. They're 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 a show for us, for for the world that we have a parliament. We have you know these international meetings. We have this and that, and they're, they're total facades. Trying to get underneath that, trying to understand you know, what's it like for people. What find stories, find people to talk to that that are interesting and 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 shed light on a big and important country. Well, what did you discover? What did you find out? About? Well, I, I don't I don't predict. I mean, China. It's 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 kind of what do all Canadians think? <laughs> multiplied by fifty. Um, you know, it, it's it's we're always wrong when we predict about China. We're, we're, we're in, in any big. Way really, I was well. Just as I was wrong when I thought that communism would collapse because I'd been in crowds of three million people demanding change, and overnight on June fourth they shot we don't know how many, and and it stopped, like somebody turned the tap off. I never came back in that public confrontational way. It's I, I mean I could talk about it for for days without stopping and 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 still not you have you have to divide it up into little slices almost anecdotes to be able to illustrate the diversity of the plays. The 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 main problem is that that they watched themselves mishandle the demonstration in eighty nine demonstrations in eighty nine. They really didn't want to commit a massacre until they thought that they had to commit a massacre, that the, the, the only way to stop it. They didn't have any subtlety or sophistication to, to know how to deal with this wave of discontent, just as you see in Hong Kong right now. They don't know how to deal with this. We've I mean, got almost a third of the population out on the streets day after day after day, week after week, six months of demonstration in Hong Kong saying, hey, what we want is representative democracy. We want a change in the police force. We want a change in the way we choose the chief executive. They've said very clearly what they want, and it's been mishandled from day one, and you've got this confrontation lurching towards what kind of disaster, I'm not sure, but a you know, very dangerous situation because the Communist Party is extremely muddled as to how to deal with these things. So in China overall, they watched and examined and thought about very hard how 1989 had worked out and what are we going to do different? Um, how can we avoid this and still cling on to power? This is their main thing. And then they watched the Soviet Union collapse. That sort of focused their minds even more. And the conclusion that the current leader, Xi Jinping, who's been there for five years, the conclusion that he's come to is that what we really need is a, a, a yet more authoritarian, top-down uh, great leader style thing, which is, I would hate to say that I'm, you know, I don't predict, so I won't say that it's doomed, but it isn't the solution to a country that's gone through an incredible economic upheaval for 30 years, where suddenly there are more billionaires in China than the rest of the world put together. There are more middle class people with perhaps a million dollars worth of assets, apartment or something like that, uh, than the entire population of Canada. Probably, you know, in a couple of cities, there are more than the entire population of Canada have that kind of wealth. It, it's really extraordinary what's happened there. And it doesn't make sense to me that you can just do this by a great leader who's always a great, glorious, and always correct <laughs> um, patriarch who just sort of issues edicts and makes the trains run on time. You know, it, 
it's fraught with difficulty and the country's very big and complex and he's making a lot of bad decisions on things like Hong Kong. Oh, well, you know, there's an uprising where uh, as many as two million people show up at a demonstration demanding something very clear. We just say that they're counter-revolutionary rioters and that's going to somehow make them go away. And they have a Muslim population in Xinjiang, a big province in the West, who've always been uneasy since they were incorporated into China in the 18th century. And how are we going to deal with this fact that they want to speak their own language and they have their religion, they have their mosques, they have their music, they have their culture. They, they used to be a very important part of the Silk Road. They, they have a language that's very different from Chinese. It's, it's almost like Turkish. How are we going to deal with this? And it was always that like we'd rub along and they, they would allow education in Uyghur, the, the, the language of that part of the country. They would allow education to happen in that language. They would allow mosques to operate. They would allow this. Suddenly they decide, like two years ago, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to put everybody into re-education school and they're going to learn not to be Muslim and they're going to learn not to want to speak their own language and they're going to learn how to uh, give up their music. And uh, they've just locked. We don't know how many, but certainly over a million, probably more like three, lock people up. Mm -hmm. and, and, and subject them to these ridiculous classes to learn Chinese and learn Communist Party jargon and stop owning any religious books. It, it's absolutely outrageous. It's a kind of cultural genocide that we as a country have not objected to strenuously enough and the world as a whole has not, because nobody knows quite what to do. They never thought that in the 2019, we'd be watching this retrograde fascist approach to to how do you deal with minorities yeah no it's kidding a, if we just said in canada well you know these people in quebec they're always arguing about about education or the english language and they do things differently and we don't really don't really agree with it and and there's only six million why don't we just send them to school make them speak english you know <laughs> it'd, be, um, it'd be madness. It's, it'd it's, be it's, absolute madness. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And they justify it by saying, well, they're, they're terrorists. They're Muslims. They've got to be terrorists. And there had been some violent incidents because there's a lot of resentment about the way that they're treated. And there are a lot of resentment about carpetbagger businesses going in and scooping up resources. And it all goes back to mainland Chinese hands and so on. So, so the, it's it's a classical minority against the majority situation, and and the lessons of how to do that successfully are on our doorstep. I mean, really, I think Canada is a world model of how how do you incorporate minorities in your country that are sometimes really quite different and quite insistent on remaining different. <laughs> well. We can have referendums too often. Some people say we can have a separation of powers. We, we can have Quebec taking care of a lot of its own things and BC taking care of other things that they like, they care about and so on. The ways that we try to be inclusive and incorporate minorities and language problems and religious problems, I think are quite exemplary. And the Chinese don't get it. They just have a total tin ear. Why, why don't these people want to be Chinese? But this is a situation that's happening right now, and you're eight years removed from living in the country, and so you're keeping track of what's going on there, oh, and and feel, feeling defense. Like it sounds like you're feeling quite defensive for the minorities. That oh, are, absolutely, because yeah. because uh, first of all, it angers me if you like that the regime would be so blind as to think that this is going to solve their problem. It's irritating that they would regard it as a problem rather than as a, a, a richness that we have this unique 
people, Tibet, Xinjiang, the, the people in Yunnan, these incredible cultures in our country, and we should rejoice and, and let them be. They see it as an affront to the great and glorious Chineseness of China that, that people would be different, except when they have the annual parliament, they'll let them come and dress them up in these fancy peasant costumes and look, we're, we're inclusive. They're wearing their silly hats. And it's, it's, it's condescending and, and, uh, totally misunderstands how people are and, and that an authoritarian, rigorous, no mercy, educate everybody, fire them all approach is just storing up problems for the future, I think. Have you, through your career, witnessed situations not exactly like this, but similar to this time and time again, where you have the underdog, the minority who are being trampled underfoot? Oh, sure. It's, yeah. it's so common. It's the cause of so many of the conflicts. It's the root cause of a lot of the conflict in Burma, because it's a country of many minorities and one slightly smaller a majority, but not a very big majority. And it's never been at peace. It's not just the Rohingyas. There's, there's all sorts of different ethnic groups that are still fighting against the central government. And, and it's because they haven't learned to accommodate their differences. Lebanon, precisely as I was describing, patchwork of different religions, different languages, different nations, all in this tiny place. Um, Belgium. I mean, you just go on and on. In India right now, the government of India has a sort of Trump-like figure. I guess the Indian-Canadian penderites will <laughs> demonstrate outside my house or something. But, um, put it this way, they have, a, they have a Hindu nationalist government at the moment that is doing some things that are offensive to Muslims. And uh, the Muslims are a very, very big minority in India. And there is no solution to harmony in India without accommodating the different religions and languages of the country. It's a big, sprawling, very, very diverse country. And the only way to make it work is, is to, to accommodate each other. And here you have this government in power at the moment that thinks, no, we'll just order them to stop doing that. And we'll change the citizenship laws. And we'll change this law. And we'll change that law. And then everybody will be happy. You know, it's it's, it's uh, the root cause of I don't know how many conflicts in the world is this inability to accommodate the other, and then when the other gets angry because you know things are they're uncomfortable as the box gets tighter on them, then you start blaming them as being terrorists, and they're the cause of all the problems that we're suffering. And that's the reason our economy isn't good. It's a long, slippery slope that we've seen so often so many places go down yeah. i was going to ask you that what would your solution be as to how to make the world a better place patrick <laughs> well, brown no, what, I mean, what would you do but well, you say the inability to accommodate the it's other it's ridiculous to ask me i mean it's not my thing to prescribe for every country mm -hmm. but but if you look at the conflicts of the 20th century and say where are the roots of this Nine times out of ten, it's some inability to accommodate the other and, and then a growing belief that the other is to blame for all of the problems and then bigger or smaller acts of violence and so on. I don't know how to make all the people in what used to be Yugoslavia come to terms with themselves. I mean, you, the peace in Yugoslavia is, is totally fragile, but you have 
Serbians and Croatians and, 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 uh, and Bosnians and Albanians and all these different language stroke, religious stroke, historically different groups that had a war in, in the middle of Europe that seemed inconceivable at the time. I don't know. Is it education? Is it... Um, acceptance? Acceptance, yeah. But how do you legislate acceptance? How do you legislate kindness? Well, you don't. It's something that you can't force upon people, but you can you can recommend and educate and and talk about and well, you know, it's and something you were turn. talking about earlier. Was you know you've asked a lot of people what who helped them on Pender, and and I I was saying well, I really don't want to single anybody out. I'm not comfortable with with the kind of judgment that it implies. But you know, I had a plot for a while in the in the community garden. Which is in the farm opposite Carl Hansen's farm opposite the the library, and there's twenty plots in this community garden, and there's some black belt gardeners in there, and I'm not one of them, and the people that were able to see my ignorance and incompetence helped me to get over it without letting me feel like a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was very typical of the kind of thing that we value in this community is that there there was a, a kind of automatic default to a certain amount of kindness mm. and a wish to help out without creating friction. And so there's that and a very similar thing in the, that we have a, a ton of really accomplished musicians on this island. It's it's quite astonishing the level of skill and talent and gift that is just hiding out in the woods here. And there is Within that, there is an amazing willingness to accommodate and encourage players who are less gifted, say, or less, you know, spent less time on it, or, you know, are still working on it, just to build a musical community. Again, it takes, from somebody who's a really accomplished musician, a lot of patience to spend time encouraging whatever group of people to play something, you know. And, and again, it's that spontaneous default towards inclusion and kindness that, that I value rather than individual X came and fixed my pump, you know. Are you saying that you found the solution to the world's problems located no, on, not Pender, on Pender Island? On Pender Island? Very often small-scale things, don't, <laughs> small scale things don't, don't translate. You can't, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely no good the, imagining that you can... And tell people to love thy neighbor. Isn't there some guy that said that? I, I believe What's so. That sounds kind of yeah, familiar. I don't know, can't, can't remember. No, well, uh, um, you know, it, it sometimes works on a small scale in small places, but you could still hear, you know, any amount of contempt for Albertans or <laughs> French speakers or, or people who voted a different color. You know, it, it, we're not immune. For sure. How's your retirement been? How's your retirement been since uh, 2011? It's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I don't regret being here. I said at the beginning, I don't, I don't share that sort of messiah complex of having found the, the Garden of Eden uh, and, and not even taken a bite out of the apple yet. But I do, uh, I do value some things about this community. I do value the, the fact that we have a critical mass to have a school and a library and a UTU and all of the things that people value here actually with a huge dose of um, volunteer um, activism, again, usually 
people quietly sit on this board and that board and keep the wheels on to various institutions that, that otherwise wouldn't exist here. And I, th I think that's, that's, uh, that's valuable. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I'm just going to wind things down a little bit here. We don't have to come to a hard finish right away or anything, but uh, just going to sort of go on the downward slope a little bit. But, uh, you know, I want to say thank you very sincerely, actually, for walking me through some really interesting parts of the world and pieces of history that you were on the ground for and and really being present for as well, too. I, I guess a question that I have that I want to ask earlier, but I don't want to let this one go, is that what part of the world has really stayed with you of the areas that you've been to? Because you've mentioned, you know, reflecting on what things were like in Lebanon, Burma, Philippines, China, obviously, but you don't have to just stick with one. But uh, what uh, what part or parts of the world have uh, really stuck in your heart? Well, I spent such a long time in China that you know it it kind of gets under your skin. But otherwise, I I, I really like the countries like Lebanon, these little complicated countries right on the edge of things. <laughs> Burma's a bit like that. Lebanon's like that. And then I, I used to go to Afghanistan before the Taliban, during the Taliban, and after the, the, the invasion in 2003. I was there quite a bit, you know, occasionally for years. And it, it's, it, there's nowhere like it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a very addictive kind of country too, apart from, you know, the incredible drama of the scenery, the mountains and the, this weird patchwork of peoples that sort of holds together, but is in perpetual war as well, with the little help from its outside friends. It's it's interesting, you know. <laughs> that's 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 the word that I would use more than nice or pleasant or which country do you like? I, I like these interesting, complex ones um, where you sort of think there's, there's value here and there's there's Sometimes what attracts me about these conflicts and these, these, these really desperate situations more, more than sort of natural disasters, you, people get shocked and horrified by going to an earthquake or a flood where thousands and thousands of people have lost their lives and there's infrastructure there. And, and the situation is, interesting but it's it's not somehow as interesting to me as these ongoing wars where where people are, are forced into extremes of bad behavior and good <laughs> i don't it, it's sort of for good or evil their their humanity is at the limit and sometimes you find in in the middle of a, a distressing conflict you'll find some act of kindness and generosity and, and liberal thought at great risk. I think if I, if, if I was still doing that kind of work, I would be very heartened by the white helmets in Syria who are just the guy from the gas station, the local plumber, the local shopkeeper, trying to run some kind of emergency service in the direst of extreme circumstances putting their lives on the line to just try and get if any survivors in that bomb building let's try and go get them and that somehow makes up for the the awfulness that you see daily from 
the big institutions, the governments, the armies, the, 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 the bullies of the world. You say, okay, here's a guy who's trying to do the best he can with what he has here now in this circumstance. Without complaining, he's just going about doing it. And I, I, I think, okay, I can take some hope out of that. That's fantastic. I was going to say, do you have any final words after that? But uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful final words. Patrick Brown, you've had an incredible life. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you very much to Patrick again for doing that interview. And to honor that interview, I decided I'd make my way down to Sandy Sievert Park. So this park is located on the North Island in the Magic Lake area. And to get here, I drove down Galleon Way and turned onto Gunnel Road and parked and walked down the trail to enter into this little park that is filled with alder trees. And this is kind of a rare thing on the island. And I can't think of another place off the top of my head that is like this spot. There's a tall grasses, salal, and as mentioned, just a ton of alders. And it's just a short little trail that meanders through and makes its way up to Spyglass Road. And yeah, I'm always so happy to walk through this little park. So there you go. Thank you once again to Patrick. And before I sign off, I'm going to mention the new business that I've embarked upon called My Audio Memoir. So if you're at all interested in recording your own life story or having the life story of a family member or loved one recorded, I do private recording sessions where after doing a series of pre-interviews with the individual, I will sit down with them over multiple recording sessions in their own home, recording their stories in their own voice for them to save for future generations to hear. I edit the work to make it sound as crisp and clear as possible. And in the end, you or the person that you'd like to have recorded has their memoirs permanently recorded. So if this sounds of interest to you at all, please feel free to contact me at an email address that I've set up that I've put at the bottom of the show notes. And that is myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. That's M-Y-A-U-D-I-O-M-E-M-O-I-R at outlook.com. Thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year and happy 2020. And until next time.